Okay, this comes from uh, the Word of God, Matthew 7, verses 24 through 29. This is about the wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Paige, for reading for us this morning. Good morning, everybody. So we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount this morning with this amazing image that Jesus gives of a life built on a rock versus a life built on the sand. One of my brothers right now is looking for a house, and so he was telling me about a couple of the houses they've looked at, and so I went online to start looking at some of these, and I found this other house that has the right amount of bedrooms and bathrooms. It's beautiful on the inside. It's in the right spot. It's at a great price, and so I sent it to him, and I said, this is the house. This is perfect for you all, and he sent me a message back that said, When it came on, we went and saw it the first day it came on the market, but it has foundation problems. And they put in piers, but it doesn't appear that it worked. We crossed it off our list. You ever encountered a house like that? Dream from the outside, perfect in every way. And in fact, if you moved into it, chances are, in the short term, you wouldn't have any problems. But there's this potential that because of the cracks and because of what's under the house, something catastrophic might happen. Here's a, little, a question that's a little deeper. Have you ever met any people like that? Great on the outside. Amazing in the short term. Fun to be around. They look like they've got everything together. They keep up appearances, but then you start to see some cracks in the foundation. Jesus, being the brilliant teacher that he is, wraps up what's probably the most famous portion of his teaching with a very simple building metaphor. The foundation matters most. In fact, you can build a wonderful-looking life, but if it's not built on the rock, it could be gone in an instant. That's what Jesus is effectively saying at the end of this sermon. And I want to draw your attention to not just the end of the sermon, but what happens after that. So we get to the end of the sermon, and sometimes we stop by reading the story of the wise man and the foolish man who build their houses. But notice what it says right after that. It says, when Jesus stopped teaching, the people were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I want, I want us to step back for a minute. The Sermon on the Mount is so familiar. You've heard the Beatitudes. You've heard, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I say don't hate. These are so common in our culture. But 
the original impact of this sermon was astonishment at what Jesus had taught. And it's not astonishment that Jesus is so smart, although he was brilliant. It's not just that he was a great teacher and used the best illustrations and just brought it down to the bottom shelf for everybody. Those, those things are true. The people were astonished at the authority with which Jesus taught. The people were astonished. They were stunned. This word means dumbstruck. They were shocked at the authority with which Jesus taught. Jesus is making some huge assertions about your life in this message. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount should be a very threatening message to us. Now, why is that? Well, because Jesus is saying at the end, the foundation of your life matters the most. In fact, you can build an amazing life, but if it's not built on the right thing, ultimately, it could be worth nothing. All of our efforts, all of our aims, all of our track record, everything that we've done could be worth nothing if it's built on the wrong foundation. In fact, Jesus is going even further than that by saying, you have a foundation for your life. Whether you know it or not, whether you've been intentional about it or not, whether you've been cognizant and and you've decided to build on a certain foundation or not, you actually have constructed your life on something. And he's saying out there, one of the threatening things he's saying is, and some of you are living on fault lines. Some of you, if you look underneath the veneer, are living on sand. That could be a very offensive thing to say to someone. Jesus is also saying that you get your identity from somewhere. And you have looked to something or someone to make you who you are. You're looking to something to bring meaning in your life, to bring satisfaction in your life. You're looking for something to get your vision for the future, what's going to happen when all is said and done. You've built your life in such a way that you've oriented yourself towards something or someone. And Jesus is saying, but what something or someone have you picked? The people are astonished at Jesus' teaching And we need to be astonished when we hear this. Here's one of the signs that we're getting the sermon right. is not that we end Matthew chapter 7 and we say to ourselves, man, that's really good. But to say, wow, that is astounding that he would say that. It's almost like he's saying things that make me think that he thinks he's God or something. That he has the ability to judge who's in and who's out. That he has the authority to say, Now and for all time, this is the way to live. It's astonishing because it's hard for us to hear Jesus be so black and white about the world. Leave a little gray area, Jesus. Things are complicated. Life is tough. People are doing their best. People were astonished that Jesus doesn't teach that way. In fact, maybe the most astonishing thing about this sermon is that he lays out there are only two ways to be in the world. In fact, the whole sermon from the very beginning in chapter 5 to the end in chapter 7 is a contrast of two different kinds of life. And what's shocking about Jesus' assessment is he doesn't use our categories to divide people into two groups. We, We typically like to divide the world into good people and bad people. 
It's how we like to divide the world. In fact, if you ask somebody, what, what makes a good person? They can typically tell you what they think is good and, and what they think is bad. And it's funny because a lot of times these categories are not all that set. Depending on what you've been through in your life, these categories can get very loose in terms of what is a good person and what is a bad person. In fact, when I was a risk management advisor to our to fraternity I was in, you get to see this in its naked form all the time. Well, this person did get drunk and punch another member, and they are failing all their classes, and they probably are doing drugs in our house, which is illegal, but one of their buddies will show up at the trial and say, he is a good person. What definition are you using to, de- to define this? No, guys, let's give him another chance because at heart, he's a great person. Show me. Point to something you want to say at these trials. Point to something that would show me a coherent definition. What you really mean is I like this person. That's sometimes how we define good and bad. And people get better at this. People get more sophisticated at this. But at our heart, we want to divide the world up into good people and bad people. Good people are like us and people we're willing to give the benefit of the doubt to. And bad people are people not like us. It's like the, at least I didn't kill someone. And, and then if you've killed someone, I don't know what you say after that, but it's, we always have a line and it's moving and Jesus is like, actually, I'm just going to throw those categories out altogether. Your definition of what is good and what is bad is not the way Jesus divides the world. In fact, Jesus really gets after the religious people because he rejects another category that we love to use, which is people of faith and everybody else. So Jesus actually rejects the category that because somebody believes something really sincerely, that that thing might be true. In fact, nowhere in the Bible will you read that the amount of faith has any determination on the object of faith. Instead, (coughs) Jesus is going to say things like, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, but you put it on the right thing, That's better than a thousand pounds of faith on the wrong thing. Sometimes we're lulled into believing if you just believe something really sincerely, because, you know, all all religions are effectively the same. They teach you to be a good person, a person of faith, and that's good enough for God at the end. Jesus is throwing that category out. It doesn't matter the amount of faith you have. It matters what your faith is in. It's like a ship that puts down an anchor, and we would say it's not about the anchor, how heavy the anchor is. It's what the anchor is attached to. Jesus throws the category of people of faith out the window. It only matters for him what your faith is in. Thirdly, and this really gets him in trouble. In fact, this is the reason that Jesus gets killed at the end of the Gospels. It's one thing to read the Sermon on the Mount and be like, I love Jesus' ethics, I love this whole love your neighbor thing. I love the way that he talks about doing unto others as you would do for them. And Jesus, a lot of times, even in secular contexts, is held up as this exemplar of moral virtue and vision. But if you read far enough, you got to remember, he made people so mad that at the end, they killed him. They killed him. And the reason for that is the third thing that Jesus throws out, and that is, Religious people versus everybody else. 
This is a category we, as Christians, absolutely love. People that do Christian things, people that go to church, people that signal that they're doing what Jesus commanded, people that give, people that serve, people that read their Bibles, and everybody else. People that are here this morning versus all the other people that decided not to come. The religious people versus the non-religious people. In their day, this would have been most astonishing because the people would have realized that the most religious people of their day might not be in. The Pharisees, the scribes, the people who upheld the external matters of the law, Jesus goes after them most viciously saying, you are hypocrites because you do something, you give an appearance of something, but the heart is not with it. See, Jesus throws out this final category of saying it's not about what you signal to the world. It's not about the outward motions that you go through. It's not about proving to everybody else that you have a wonderful facade on the outside. Jesus is saying that's not the categories that God uses. God actually has an entirely different way to group the world, not into good people and bad people, not into people of faith and everybody else, not into religious people and non-religious people, to righteous people and unrighteous people. This concept of righteousness, you're probably tired of hearing about this, because every week this is the point. It is the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's the theme of Matthew is, what does it take to be a righteous person? Because Jesus' categories are, you are either righteous before God, you're right before him, you are wholeheartedly devoted to him, or you are not. And you can actually be a very good person and not be righteous. You can be a very faithful, religious, devoted person externally and not be righteous. I was listening to an interview with, that Tim Keller was doing with some skeptics, and the question that comes up in all these forums is, but what about good atheists? You know, what about people that are not of faith, but they're better than the Christians you know? As if that's like a knockdown argument, because if the goal of the Christian life was to be a good person, that would really be a stunner. And I love what he said. He says, you remember what Mark Twain quote, where somebody says to Mark Twain, do you believe in infant baptism? And he says, believe in it? I've seen it with my very eyes. And he goes, that's what I would answer to the good atheist. Do I believe that there can be good atheists? I've seen it with my own eyes. You can be very good and be an atheist, a skeptic, an agnostic, a church-attending person, but Jesus is cutting with a different cross-section. But are you righteous? Are you righteous? What is your status before God? What is your orientation? What is your foundation? What is the the fundamental principle of your life. And if it is a wholehearted devotion and embrace of God through Jesus Christ, you're in. See, this is the astonishing part of Jesus is so cut and dried. If you are righteous, you're in. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what preceded that decision to trust in Christ to be righteous before God. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It doesn't matter any of those things. In fact, Jesus is going to go so far as to say, you can't clean those things up well enough for God anyway. The only thing you can do is get on your knees and surrender and say, I want to be made right with God. I want to be forgiven of my sin. I want to have grace and forgiveness in my life. If you're willing to do that, Jesus says, you're righteous. 
And that's the only thing that matters before God. So there's no middle way for Jesus. There's no bad people, pretty good people, and then like really good people. There's just righteous people and unrighteous people. And at the end of this sermon, Jesus is going to tell us what it looks like to become a righteous person. Notice that in the passage before ours, this is one of the most harrowing passages of Scripture. In verse 21, he says, Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this is judgment day, on that day, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons? And did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anybody else ever been terrified by that passage before? That's kind of a scary thing that people are going to say, Lord, Lord, and come to him and say, we did all the stuff. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You're not righteous. You don't know my Father who's in heaven. You don't do his will. See, the thing about the Jews of that day that I constantly want to remind us of is that we have such a low standard for external righteousness. right? We have such a low standard for behaving in a way that God might accept. They were serious about this. They were doing all the things that the law commanded. That's the difference between hypocrisy now and then. Hypocrisy then wasn't saying one thing and doing another. It was actually doing all those things, but not having your heart in it. Right? For us today, hypocrisy is like, I want to be seen as a good person, but I don't really want to do the things that would make people think that, so I'm just going to say that I'm a good person, and then people are going to realize I live my life differently. The charge for the Pharisees is so much higher for that. They were doing everything. They were tithing. They were fasting. They were praying. They were doing Bible reading and memorization like you wouldn't believe. And Jesus says, but, but they don't know me. They're not righteous. Their hearts are far from me. And Jesus escalates this to the very top. He's like, what would convince you of somebody being a great religious person? Would it be casting out demons maybe or prophesying or doing miracles? He's like, there's going to be people who do that standard, but their heart is not given to Christ. But then he flips it around. He says, so how do you, how do you become righteous? Well, everyone who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rains come, and the floods come, and the winds blow, and they beat on the house, but the house does not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish person who builds their house on the sand. And the rains come, and the floods come, and the winds blow, and they beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Think about the similarities between these two people. They both hear the word, right? These are both church attenders, we might say. They hear the word, they're around it, they both build a house, they both have a good-looking house, they both have a house that people think would withstand something, and then at the end of the day, one stands and the other falls. But did you notice the difference? In fact, this difference is in both passages, in verse 21 and 22 and in verse 24, the difference is these are not just hearers of the word, these are doers of the word. 
The only difference between these two people is one of them hears and does, and the other one hears and doesn't. Be a hearer of the word, that's good, but be a doer of the word, and you'll be righteous. Be a doer of the word, and you'll be righteous. One of the commentators says, perhaps there is no passage in the New Testament that expresses more concisely and sharply the essence of discipleship. It is found not in words, not in religiosity, not even in the performance of spectacular deeds in the name of Jesus, but only in the manifestation of true righteousness, doing the will of the Father interpreted through the teaching of Jesus. That's it. Be a doer of the word. Respond to what God has commanded us to do, and you will be righteous. See, this is the thing about Christianity that's so different from every other religion, is at the one, on one hand, it is the most exclusive religion on the planet, in that there is only one way, there is only one God, one Savior, there's only one way to be right with him. But on the other hand, it is the most inclusive religion you could ever come up with because it's not based on your performance. It's not based on keeping up appearances. It's not based on your track record. It's not based on what you've done or not done for God. It's based on this very simple thing. Anyone who comes to Christ and surrenders to him will be saved. Paul says this so concisely in Romans. Anyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. It is the most inclusive lowest bar you could ever have in a religion. You want to be right with God? Be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word of Christ. Through this lens, then, the sermon begins to make total sense. All of life is to be centered around this truth about God. If you take your heart and give it to him, your whole life will begin to change. Look at the way this sermon flows. In chapter 5, it talks about the way your heart is supposed to be oriented to God, that you would be blessed when you are, spirit, when you are poor in spirit because you have the kingdom of heaven. You would be blessed when you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because it's the only way to be satisfied. You'll be blessed when you're a peacemaker because you'll be called a child of God. That when you come and practice things like the law, anger, murder, lust, divorce, making oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, it's the core part of your heart, your orientation to God that will determine whether or not you can uphold his standard. In fact, chapter 6 then magnifies this to our motives and religious duties. When you pray, do you pray to a heavenly father or do you pray to be seen by other people? The righteous person cares first and foremost what God thinks of them. The righteous person gives in such a way that they are actually communing with their heavenly father, whereas the unrighteous person does these things so that other people might think that they're a good, righteous person. When you pray, do you just heap up phrases and requests, or do you say, God, more than anything in the world, I want your name to be lifted up, and I want your kingdom to come and thrive, and give me what I need to be on mission for you. That's the way the righteous person prays, because that's the way the righteous person's heart beats. Chapter 7 extends into the way we treat other people. How else could you possibly fulfill the golden rule unless you knew that you had already been forgiven? It would be impossible to love your enemy and pray for them if you weren't banking on the fact that God was the one who was going to make it right 
in the end. I've been reading this book. I would recommend this little book called The Seamless Life. It's a book about faith and vocation. And what's interesting about this book is by Stephen Garber. And the whole concept of the book is a righteous life is a seamless life. Because what righteousness does is it wars against any compartmentalization in our life. It's not like I'm a righteous person at church, but then I go do my own thing the rest of the week. Or I'm a righteous person in the morning during my quiet time, but then I forget all about it for the rest of the day. A righteous heart is a seamless heart, one that is holy and fully devoted, nothing held back, no special locked cabinets or drawers that we keep to ourselves, everything given to God. He says, what does a seamless life look like? And he says, years ago I was persuaded that the, quote, nothing but approach to life was totally flawed. Human beings are not nothing but Sex is not nothing but. Work is not nothing but. Psychology is not nothing but. Politics are, is not nothing but. Every single thing in your life matters because the person who is righteous brings that devotion to God wherever they go. So your work is not nothing but work anymore. It's not nothing but making money. It's not nothing but providing anymore. It's the way that God has gifted you to go and build the kingdom. Your relationships with people are not nothing but relationships anymore. You have been given a place in this world to influence, to be like a city on a hill, Jesus says, to do things so that other people might come and love your heavenly Father. If you are a righteous person, if you're living a seamless life, now every single part of your life is lit up with purpose from God. There's no such thing as the Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas part of your life anymore. Everything is now co-opted for the righteousness of God radiating out through you into your world. It's the way C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, but aim at earth and you will get neither. Aim at righteousness, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. The righteous person gets their priorities in order, and then God provides. God empowers. God supplies. God satisfies. God gives meaning. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all of a sudden you realize your life has now fallen in line the way God designed you to be. There's one more thing that they probably were astonished about when they heard Jesus teach this message. In this little parable at the end, it talks about trials. At the end of chapter 7, it's not just they built houses. It's that the storm came, the floods came, and it had an effect on the houses. In fact, this word astonished, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching, isn't just like a marvel, like, wow, that was really cool. It's also a word that you might use when you were terrified by something, when you were shocked by something. So these people were frightened by what Jesus said. And to close this sermon and to close the Sermon on the Mount, I want to investigate that for a moment and just say, what about this sermon would terrify you? What about this sermon you might be shocked and scared of what was just said? This end point of the sermon has a warning in it. The flood came and the houses responded differently. And it also has a promise in it. 
See, Jesus is essentially telling people there's only one good foundation to build your life on. And by implication, what he's saying is everyone's life is going to be tested. Everybody's foundation is going to be tested. It's, it's not one of those things where you can just bide your time for a while and just hope that it works out, and maybe you can buy the house that has the shaky foundation and sell it before something catastrophic happens to it. Jesus, his warning here is the flood at some point is going to come. And then the foundation of the house will be revealed. Now, this passage is typically taught like there will be storms of life that come your way, and that will reveal your faith. And I think that's true, but since it's so often taught on, I'm not going to say anything about that. You guys already know that. The storms of your life will reveal your faith. Jesus, that's not enough to shock the people who are listening. Jesus is saying something more than that. There is not just a storm of life coming, there is a great final storm and flood coming. And everybody's foundation will be checked. Every person will be revealed in the end what their foundation is built on. This is actually a story of judgment that Jesus is saying. In the end, you will want to know what your foundation is. Many of you have probably been following the earthquakes in Turkey that happened and in Syria. Devastating earthquakes, two earthquakes in a row that hit Turkey. And the Wall Street Journal did a podcast uh, following this volleyball team who was playing a tournament in Turkey. They were from Cyprus, and they had traveled to a little town in southeast Turkey called Adi Yaman. And they had about 40 girls on this volleyball team, and they had booked their trip in the Elias Hotel, which is actually the word for Elijah, uh, which I thought was interesting. It's called the Ilias Hotel. Very nice hotel in the city. But before they arrived, they found out that the hotel had overbooked the people who were coming to the hotel. And so when they got there, they had to split their group between the Ilias Hotel and the Park Hotel, which was about 300 yards away. And when they checked in, the next morning was when the earthquake hit. And the Ilias Hotel was leveled. In fact, to find the Ilias Hotel, the people and their families had to pull it up on Google Maps to figure out where in this city this hotel was. But the Park Hotel is still standing. In fact, it's not just still standing, it only has minor cosmetic damage. And what they were talking about is if you had looked at two pictures of these hotels, they look exactly the same. They're the same level of niceness and luxury. They look the same from the outside. They're built with the same materials. So why did one of these hotels completely crumble? Everybody who was staying in that hotel passed away. Nobody died in the other one. They're 300 yards apart. How could this possibly happen? In 2019, when Erdogan was campaigning to be the leader of Turkey again, he campaigned with this little piece of his platform called Building Amnesty. And what that was is if you're a business or if you're a, a landowner and you have a building, you can pay a fee to the government to not have to pass building code. And so a lot of buildings in Turkey paid this amnesty. And they said, you know what, we'll take our chances, we'll, we'll, we'll bet on the odds, nothing has happened in the past, we think we're okay, we'll just pay you this money, 
and you just turn your head the other way when it comes to building inspection. And what these buildings did was they, they originally were built up to code, but once they got the amnesty, they started filing down the columns in the middle of their buildings so that they could have more parking, more merchandise, bigger places to put people who were renting space. And if you look at the columns in this building and what it was standing on versus the building in the Park Hotel, who had not done this, they had not paid the amnesty, the difference in what they were standing on was so severe that it led to the whole fall of the hotel. Jesus is making a similar statement. There, there is the possibility almost of paying a little bit of an amnesty tax in your life. You don't know when something's going to happen. You don't know when you're going to breathe your last breath. But if things go like they've been going, you're probably fine for now. That Jesus says, but every person at some point is going to be tested. Everything is going to be shaken. In fact, people think that the author of the Hebrews, we don't know where Hebrews was written, but people think that it must have been a city that had had an earthquake in it in the first century. Because all through the book of Hebrews, there's references to things shaking. And you get to the end of the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 12, the big climax of the argument of Hebrews, he begins to quote from the book of Haggai, and he says, the Lord has decreed that everything will be shaken. In fact, the earth and its foundations, the kingdoms of the world, the lives of the people will be shaken. And he says, God has promised, yet once more I will shake the earth and the heavens, and what can be shaken will pass away. But what cannot be shaken will remain. And then they give this wonderful praise. Yet once more, I will shake the earth and the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken must remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. See, this warning has a promise with it. If you build your life on the rock, nothing can ever shake you in the end. He doesn't promise that shaking is not going to happen. He doesn't promise that you're not going to feel a little tenuous about it. He promises that in the end, there is one thing that cannot be shaken. There is one kingdom that can't be shaken. There is one person to trust in. Though everything in your life is shaking, this rock will never be moved. When the floods come, there is one hope, one promise of having an unshakable life, being a righteous person, being forgiven by God, being given grace from the God who loves to save. Though you can't control what happens in your life, you can't control when your life ends. You cannot control when judgment comes. The one who holds the universe together will hold on to you. That's the promise of the Sermon on the Mount. Give him your heart, and it will be safe for eternity. Bend your life around him. Orient your heart towards him, and when trials come, you will be anchored to something that can never be shaken. The people were astonished when they heard that. 
that he would teach with such authority. Give your heart to me, and it will never be moved. You will never be ultimately in a place without him. He will be with you to the end of the age and beyond. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this difficult teaching. Father, we get so uncomfortable with judgment and with the authority that Jesus brings. Father, it's sobering for us to have to confront the fact that we will have to face judgment. But Father, we thank you for your promise. Father, we thank you that there is a way to have an unshakable, seamless life by putting our trust in you. And Father, beyond that, we thank you that that's just the starting point, that actually putting our trust and our hope in you is not just a dreary life of waiting until the end comes. It is the way we were made to live. So Father, we ask you now as we consider this word of judgment to turn our hearts to the joy of knowing you. Father, we know that for those who trusted you, there is no condemnation. Instead, there is fruit that spills over out of our life of joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and self-control. And Father, I pray that you would bring fruit for those who trust in you. Father, I ask now as we come to your table that you would fill us, that you would sustain us, that you would remind us that you are the one who gives us meaning. You are the one who gives us what we need to do your will. You are the one who sustains us. You are our lifeblood. You are like our oxygen. Father, by your spirit now empower us to live before you. Lord, we ask you in this moment to help us understand the great price that Christ paid for us to be able to be righteous. Father, he who knew no sin took on our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So, Father, we lift up your son Jesus now. And it's in his name we pray.